like this makes sense. My name is Matthew Kroll. And can you find the wolves in this picture? My name is Shahir Dowd. I just love money. It's true. It's true. I, I damn near love it as almost as much as my wife. I'm Red Charizan. And this is the only podcast about movies, specifically the film Killers of the Flower Moon. Uh, well, that is a quite a title and quite a book and quite a film. And this is a I, I actually admit I have uh, I've been feeling a little awkward about this because we read you've been on the show several times before. We love having you back. But welcome this is, back. Welcome back. Thank and, you. And thanks for filling in when I was away. I love being an alternate. Shea, Shea yeah, here. you are. It's, you are. You do look exactly like me. We were pretty much twins. <laughs> yeah. at this Actually, point. I, I'm not going to lie. Your beards are very close. Yeah. You know? yeah, our beard, yeah. We, we're beard brothers yeah. at this point. Oh. But the awkward the part of this conversation is that you work on Killers of the Flower Moon. Yeah, by it's if you call it work. Lot. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So I get, mean, if you enjoy your job, is it really work? I mean, <laughs> yeah, when they don't pay me, it isn't. <laughs> so it was a funny thing was I, I saw the movie, uh, I've seen it twice. I saw it on uh, Friday night, opening mm. night, and uh, I was with a friend and I was telling him about you. And, and he had so many questions about what you do. Oh, yeah. Uh, and wanted to know more. So this is specifically for Alex, um, but for everyone else is listening, could you tell us what your role is at Sakelia Pitches and and specifically what have you been doing for probably the last better part of the last 10 years now? Well, generally speaking, mm-hmm. um, I fill a I fill a space in a room. Right. And uh, that's about <laughs> it. I am uh, I am a visual effects editor and also the first assistant editor. I get I get paid one time, mm-hmm. but the title keeps changing. OK, uh, depending <laughs> on the week. Uh, so that's that's what I do. I think of me as a. Uh, the guy who puts together the fancy shots and the guy who is then is in charge of keeping them organized. It's interesting because I think um, I, this was this was a thing from Alex as well, was that um, outside looking on the outside in, the assistant editor sounds like a position that is kind of like um, uh, one which you ascend and then become an editor. But mm. I was explaining to him that I know several assistant editors who it's a career yes. unto itself. And it is a very complex technical job. Uh, that require that that is a unique skill set that is quite different to editing. Yes, yes. A lot of people like to think of it as tiers, but I don't. Yeah. I don't like thinking of it as tiers. They're no. very different professions that are closely related. Yeah. Uh, I, th- I think uh, most uh, most uh, picture editors would couldn't get anywhere without an assistant, and of course, movies couldn't be made. Yeah. Without editors, so they're they're vital for each other. You know. So. And sorry, uh, uh, there was a day we I'm were fully at- expecting you here to just keep going yeah, on this. Sorry, one. this is fine. I'll it's look fine. at you from time to time. <laughs> no, no, it's fine because I'm only nervous when you're here for Beetlejuice. So yeah. this, is, <laughs> this is fine. I remember uh, we were actually all three of us were working uh, in an office in New York and uh, you you had a temporary office there for for a time. And oh, we, yeah, Matt and I right. were working on Guy Code and I came in and you were cutting a Leonardo DiCaprio, Robert De Niro, Martin Scorsese. You commercial. forgot about Brad Pitt. Brad, Brad Pitt, Pitt was makes also an appearance right. as well. Yes. And I was watching you um, put together uh, scenes from a casino commercial that they were making at the time. Yes. And I remember, I think I bothered you for a while. I was like, let me listen to a little bit of Scorsese directing. I was like, give me, give me a little, <laughs> you know, I slipped you a five and was like, uh-huh. hey, let me, let me play. But like, walk me through kind of on a film like Killers. Mm. Mm-hmm. Okay, so Marty is out on uh, in the field shooting. Rodrigo Pierto is 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 compiling footage. The the footage comes back to you via DIT. Kind of just walk us through where where do you fit into this before it gets to Thelma or well, or, or in and around Thelma? Well, and we're obviously talking about Thelma Schoonmaker, Marty's longtime editor. Yeah, you cannot not talk about yeah. Thelma. Uh, well, you know, it's funny. Killers was actually uh, a bit different because of COVID. 
Okay. So this was the first time that the editorial team did not go to location okay. to shoot the film. Typically, we will be nearby location mm-hmm. um, with our computers to watch the dailies uh, with uh, Marty if he has enough time because those days get really long. Yeah. You know, sometimes there's just not enough time to watch the dailies with the director. And, and of course, the UPM also needs to know that they can strike sets. So no, somebody needs to be watching the dailies to make sure that we got what we need. Unit um, production manager. Yes. Right. So just for people who don't know, what's a unit production manager? Uh, the person who keeps telling me, no, you can't have that. <laughs> yeah. They're uh, essentially thinking of them as the producer that is watching the budget as it's unfolding and being careful to watch the money. Okay. Um, so the, the unfun parent. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, uh, this time around, uh, we had a producer. His name was Daniel Lupi. And wow. What a what a fun guy. Um, very encouraging, very nurturing to everybody's needs. And, you know, uh, yeah, I, I, I would work with him again. I would give him a solid like eight and a half out of ten. <laughs> His name All is right. on the credits. Yeah. One of the first yeah, that yeah. appears. It, yeah. No, he's a, he's a good guy. Um, yeah. <laughs> and it's funny because uh, people tend to th- assume that we're kind of far away. But actually, as a team, we're, we're, we're pretty close by. Uh, there have been times where we've actually built whole screening rooms just to be close by to set. So okay. it's easier on Marty to watch the dailies. So it's fresh in his mind. He knows what's going on. Yeah. Um, this time around, we were remote in New York. Uh, we shot a lot of film. This Oof. this film is mostly film. Okay. It's mostly celluloid. Uh, yeah. So we didn't have a DIT. Okay. That was a Daniel Lupi decision, actually. Yeah. Uh, see how it all ties together? So there was a telecine or an actual digitization process yes. on this? Uh, our, all of our films were digitized after processing yeah. and then sent uh, delivered to us uh, over the Ethernets. Mm-hmm. Uh, controlled by cats, I believe. Yes, yeah. that is correct. Yeah. I can speak to that. Uh, cats control yeah. that. Uh, and then we uh, got to watching them, but uh, then became the problem of, you know, I get the picture, get the sound. Mm-hmm. Uh, we don't have our dailies delivered to us at sync. We yeah. sync them together ourselves. Yeah. And then uh, Marty's not the only one who needs to see the dailies. Mm-hmm. So you have to make sure that the dailies are um, cold, trimmed down for people who have very important jobs and don't have a lot of time to watch the dailies themselves. We're talking about uh, art directors, um, costume uh, designers, uh, wardrobe uh, leads, hair and makeup, any special effects, even the the props uh, department, uh, even the often forgot about like automotive guys. There's a there's a lot of people who need to see the footage to make sure it's showing up the way that they're expecting it. And normally a DIT would kind of manage that. Work Nowadays, yeah. it, that that is the direction that it goes in. Yeah. Uh, but because we were still shooting film and we had, uh, we were on location. The audio was difficult. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, we just, instead of just doing sometimes the general recordist mix track, we would break out individual lobs or whatever, just so it was clearer for people to see. I would process that footage. We would put it up. Uh, we used uh, a, the service picks for mm-hmm. uh, our dailies, but it's basically a cloud-based secure platform so that department heads could watch it. Simultaneously, we are in, we are taking a look at the script supervision notes, yeah. trying to put things in order um, as they were shared to our script supervisor, Jessica, who's a, another, just like, it's, it's great to work with so many top tier people Yeah, um, because there's like, there's no mystery <laughs> in this stuff. Yeah. We know exactly what was happening on set because she was there recording it in a way that is easily digestible. Right. So we're taking all that footage. We are kind of assembling it together. And then there was like this time around, we, uh, specifically Thelma mm-hmm. needed to watch the dailies with Marty somehow. And uh, we worked away that he had a screening room set up in Oklahoma. Mm-hmm. We had uh, a kind of a mirror image in New York 
then we uh, had uh, uh, remote control, essentially, to be able to send through his projector our image and sound. Thelma would be watching at the same time. Then we set up an older iPad hmm. uh, in front of Marty because uh, in order to watch dailies on a screen in the theater, the lights have to be down. Right. So how do you see, you know, I'm what not going to get his reactions yeah, are like, like everybody has a different process. Yeah. Um, uh, so like you, you can imagine different scenarios for different directors. Uh, but here you, you, when you talk to somebody remotely, it's, it's, it's better if you can see them. Right. So to solve that older iPad plus a infrared flashlight yeah. allowed us to illuminate uh, the, our director without actually shining a light on him. Mm -hmm. And uh, we were able to carry on conversations and, uh, you know, Thelma did her thing. And, you know, dailies is sometimes a, depending on the project can be really personal mm -hmm. and sometimes it's, it's more technical. Right. This time it was like a mix of both. You know, there was just the stress of COVID, the story. I can't imagine the emotional toll that, um, that, that, Marty was experiencing at the time, uh, right. as well as a physical toll. I mean, it is not, I mean, there's a lot of, a lot of grass out there. Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> so, uh, you know, realistically speaking, uh, we, we tried to, you know, uh, be as unobtrusive as possible during that dailies process. And without spilling the tea too much, what is the working relationship between Marty and Thelma? Like they, these two have been making movies since Raging Bull, since before they've known each other longer than that. We're talking a legacy of 30 years of filmmaking between them, of some of the greatest films ever made. You've been involved, intimately uh, involved in uh, in their working process for probably the last better part of the last 10 years. Mm. Um, you know, without without getting too into the weeds, like how do they work together? Does Thelma kind of look at shots and say no, or you know, like does Marty kind of look at edits and say no? Do they kind of? Is there a simpatico? How does it, how do, how does it, how do they play out? You know, it's, it's very interesting and, you know, not, you know, to keep it as general as possible because I am neither one of them. Right. So I can't Wait, speak. Wait, what? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. yeah. When we booked this, I know. I'm sorry. I that was my mistake. I didn't realize it was a checkbox. Yeah. I just said yes. I uh, go back <laughs> on to cameo here. Uh, they uh they five dollars. Come on. Uh, they they uh, I have worked for uh, around many professionals. Yeah. To work for Martin Scorsese is. A, a, is a different world. Right. You're talking about a person who values and loves cinema. Right. And in a way that's profound. In, right. in, in a way that's profound. In yeah. a way that you spend five minutes in a room with him, you walk away also sharing that love and that excitement. And it never dries up. It never gets old. It's always there and it's always fresh. And in the same way, Thelma's enthusiasm is also there. You know, mm -hmm. Thelma likes to say, over and over that Marty does all of the editing. Right. And in many ways, um, she's absolutely correct. Uh, but I know that's hard to imagine because you imagine a person sitting down and put stitching together, uh, you know, or taping together a 35 millimeter or pushing buttons. But editing is so much more than that. Right. You know, the craft of editing. I think Marty, it's instinctive. Mm -hmm. I, uh, I mean, obviously he has to think about it. Everybody has to think about it. But uh he, he, his films come in kind of pre-constructed in a way that is that, that he has a vision. Yeah, we he has a vision and we're all doing our best to contribute to that vision. Yeah. And Thelma is just such a good captain when it comes to making sure the vessel gets home. 
Right. And like, I, it's hard for, you know, it's Marty's film. Right. And we all know it's Marty's film and that's how we think about it. You know, this is a Martin Scorsese picture picture. Yeah. You know, and that's, that's, that's the relationship. It's funny. The three of us met through editing. Right. Uh, I, it, it's an odd thing to sort of think about when we talk about editing. I feel like if there's one thing that the three of us have uh, the Venn diagram of our skill sets together, it's something we can speak to very clearly. So I have a question actually to both of you that's going to circle back to the question about their working Ooh. relationship is I, tr I truly believe that editing is something you can obviously learn. But I feel like there's also um, sort of a natural cadence to visual storytelling uh, or audio storytelling, depending on what you're doing, that you kind of like you. I think there are people that are kind of born with it uh, and, and can flow much easier than much like many other skills. I just don't think people often think about that when it comes to this. It feels like a technical skill when I it, it really is more of a of, of a soft mastery. It's like it's it's music, it's jazz, however you want to put it. Do you both feel that way or do you think that it is something that is kind of that can be completely technically taught uh, one way or the other? Yeah, the teacher. Go ahead. So I, I have a thing, which is that I hire editors now. Yeah. And um, uh, one of the ways I think about when I'm talking to other editors is um, I'm very suspicious of editors that don't like music. Mm. I'm very, very <laughs> suspicious. I'm very, very suspicious of an editor that does. And when I say don't like music, I mean, don't obsess over music and think about how is a piece of music constructed? Because to me, an editor thinks like music. It thinks about editing like music. And editing had to me has a lot to do with rhythm, percussion, and the kind of storytelling that comes with a musicality to it. And there's a technicality, you know, there's a technical quality to, to all editing that needs to be um, achieved, uh, you know, that, that that is required. And it is, it's sort of, you know, you get taught the 180 rule and uh, how to- Wait, so what? Should I write that down? <laughs> yeah. You know, how to sync shot A to shot B, all that, you know, you know every, the, the thing is about uh, all editing is, it, is ultimately it is connecting shot A to shot B, but the, the magic of editing is at what point shot A connects to shot B and why. And to me, that has to do with musicality. Mm. Um, that that's that's the way I think about it. I'm sure a master like Thelma might have a different opinion, but or uh, or yourself, Reed. Well, I can't. Again, I didn't. I didn't mean to mislead you. I am not Thelma. <laughs> you do look different than you in your picture. Yeah. I, I do. I do look very yeah. different than my picture. Um, the beard is is off putting. <laughs> yeah, it's 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 weird. Uh, no, uh, it, it's funny you make that observation because it is often observed that most editors. Um, have played a musical instrument at some point and, mm -hmm. and, and always think about that glory day when they've played that instrument <laughs> yeah. or were in that band. Yeah. Uh, I think there is, there is, there is a natural, there's a natural draw to music um, because I, I feel that that is a way of servicing story. I, I like, I don't think there's anybody who's a natural born griot as mm -hmm. it were, but I feel like we all as humans understand our world through story. Mm -hmm. And I feel that there are some of us who are drawn to the crafting of that story as a way of understanding our world. And yeah, for me, that's, that's where editing comes from is we all humans love stories and there's some humans that love figuring out how to tell that story. Yeah. Right. And, you know, 
I was going to say, just tying it back to your initial questions you hear about the the working relationship between uh, Thelma and Marty. I can speak to which one plays drums. Uh, <laughs> uh, they're both bass. It's yeah. weird. Um, no, the <laughs> the the. I've only experienced maybe once or twice the sort of hive mind when I was editing yeah. the hive minded thing when you get with a great director or even producer that's in the room with you, like actually crafting the story with you. And it feels like you're all kind of just incredibly in sync. You're drifting like in Pacific Rim or wherever you want to <laughs> sort of put it. Right. That's only happened once or twice. It feels like Thelma and Marty are kind of that, at least from the exterior and the quality of the work that comes out and how nice it must be to like have found your person in that in that wheelhouse early and to get to work with them for a such a long and illustrious career. I just think that's very, very cool because it's rare as hell. It is. And they're both incredibly generous, yeah, yeah. incredibly generous uh, for filmmaking from filmmakers. And just it's it, it is it is a one in a million shot. Yeah. And and the the there's been this sort of like often misguided conversation that's been happening recently around Marty. I'm going to call him Marty just because you are, not because I have any, we okay. have any relationship with him I'm calling him Martin whatsoever. from now on. Um, Martin Mr. Bartholomew. <laughs> Mr. Scorsese. Um, but there's been this misguided conversation about his relationship to blockbuster movies, and we don't want to really get into the weeds of it. But one of the factors that most people aren't aware of is his work in digital preservation, in film <sighs> cinematic pres uh, preservation. He is also a producer on several young filmmakers' works. He is, a, uh, as you described as well, a, a, a major cinephile who celebrates the art of cinema. Uh, I remember early in Quentin Tarantino's career, a man who was known for his cinephilia was asked, who would you like to you know, spend time with? And he was, you know, he was, he often talked about people he would like, like to watch work, but he was like, but I think I just want to have dinner with Martin Scorsese because I think I would learn just by being, just by having a casual dinner with him. Yeah. And, and so with that in mind, a lot of your projects aren't necessarily just the big four, last four films that, are, that he's been doing, but also like, documentaries, music documentaries, That's right, a, lot of people. a lot of preservation, digital preservation or digital archiving of work. There's a lot of work that goes on in both his foundation and the actual films. Can, can you speak to a little bit about like the myriad of things that are going on? Well, I, I want to thank you for pointing out the film foundation, right? Cause, uh, 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 Mr. Scorsese is not the only member, but yeah. he is a founding member along with Steven Spielberg and, uh, Ang Lee and, uh, George Lucas, uh, George Lucas says, uh, you know, he gets a, a lot of shade from uh, from people my age. Uh, uh, he's done an, uh, an incredible amount of work, too. Really, these guys, the, the Film Foundation, uh, work so hard to save um, our art, mm -hmm. our literature. Uh, that's what cinema is. And uh, there's a lot of money that goes into it. So much effort to find these things, the right materials. Um it was funny. Uh, I was just talking. We uh, on the extra credits. You guys mm -hmm. were doing an episode uh, uh, coming up uh, about uh, OK Corral, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And history, yeah. There was a poster that popped up, and I was like, "Oh, it's Law and Order." You know, this <laughs> 1932 picture, one of the one of the one of the first kind of like like. Uh, it, it, I'm not going to call it a proto Western. It's a fully developed yeah. Western, but you know, I was like, Oh, that is being preserved like right now as we speak. Right. Right. So like, you'll be able to go out and see it. Yeah. And how cool is that? And then on top of that, you know, Marty, I don't know how, when he sleeps yeah. because he, you know, David Tedeschi, who uh, is a brilliant editor unto himself, um, a fantastic producer and a 
darn good director, does a lot of the documentary stuff. I mean, uh, you know, uh, there's been uh, uh, just in time for a Fran con, uh, you know, Fran Leibowitz yeah, um, yeah. has been, you know, ha- has uh, has become returned to her consciousness, I think, yeah. thanks to the efforts of just the conversations that she's had with Marty. But of course, uh, various uh, other documentaries uh, recently, uh, t- too many to actually list here <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> properly. And then on top of that, like you said, uh, there's, uh, you know, there's the uh, there's uh, another foundation that goes out and finds and supports young filmmakers. I mean, this is all happening in one office. Yeah. And to think about that whirlwind of cinema and yeah. it's like and, you know, I, I don't I don't know how to say this without sounding uh, like I'm just trying to blow smoke up anybody's uh can I say ass? I'm going to say yeah, ass you can, now. You can yeah, say ass. I mean, uh, you were paid five dollars. Thank you. Yeah, uh, you can do. It. I, I, I don't know where he finds the time to make sure cinema, movies, the excitement, the shared universal experience doesn't die, and in fact pushes more and more for this global. Like, there's exciting things happening in countries that most Americans don't think of, in places that we will never hear of, and Marty. And the cohort are going out finding and supporting and giving uh, giving space for them, yeah. taking his platform where he could just spend for the rest of the day just talking about film and how great it is. And we would pay heaps of money for it. And instead is making sure that there are these kids, these emerging filmmakers that are getting their chance to be seen, to be heard, to be able to achieve their vision in a way that's nurturing and, and, and non-judgmental. Fantastic. So Good listen, listen first, kids, when uh, when Daddy Scorsese is talking about Marvel movies, he does know what he's talking about. <laughs> you know, like there is this there's this weird thing that's happened, which is that people seem to think that uh, because he has an opinion on Marvel movies, <laughs> that he doesn't seem to know uh, the breadth of movies outside of that. And uh, and he he very much probably knows more about movies than most any other human being alive. The, uh, I can just say the the the. Collection of world cinema, yeah. That that I walk by, yeah, is just mind blowing, mind mind, mind blowing. So okay, we we do need to talk about Killers of the Flower Moon. Yeah, I was going to get to good, that. Good little film. Good good, good little film. Let's, let's talk about it. Um, just before we do, uh, <laughs> we have to get to it. Well, what are what are the what are the films that you've worked on uh, that have been theatrically released with? With Marty and Thelma, uh, that would be starting with Sh- uh, Shutter Island. So Shutter Island into. Wolf. Hugo, Hugo into Wolf, into Silence, yep. into Irishman, uh, into this one. I think it would be the major uh, motion picture releases. So Irishman and Hugo had major technical innovations behind them. Yes. I'm curious where this film sits in the kind of difficulty scale of the ones you've worked on. Wow. You really you, you hit. That's a hard hitting question. Yeah. And I'll tell you why, because I was just talking to some. Um, fellow editors about this just a few hours ago. Okay. Uh, this may be hard to swallow, but just over 40% of the film that you've watched is a visual effect shot. Right. And that is really hard to believe when you think about it was 38% of Irishman was a visual effect shot. Now, Irishman is using big visual effects. This is like five cameras per actor. Yeah. Three, two yeah. cameras, uh, three, technically three cameras per actor, you know, yeah. um, very technically involved this time around, um, not nearly as technically involved, but there was more because of the nature of the period, because of the location, because of, uh, just because of 
the extreme I'm sorry. I don't mean to offend anybody from Oklahoma when I say this. The extreme environment that was Oklahoma. Yeah. Fil- <laughs> filming out in Oklahoma, it gets hot. Yeah. Right? People yeah. just start melting. You know, there's just there's just a lot of things that had to go on, but they were smaller. And I, I'm really proud of the fact that, uh, as opposed to Irishman, where it's in your face or Hugo, uh, which is a very, uh, I, I, I love Hugo. Yeah. Um, and I love the 3D work that's done. Yeah. Uh, award. I'm waiting to show this to my son, by the oh, way. So and to then show him Millier's films afterwards. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Everybody thanks you yeah. uh, for that. <laughs> um, but uh, so so this one, the the tech is supposed to be invisible. Right. And so is it was it as heavy and as hard as Irishman just just from all the technical data tracking? Yeah. No, not at all. Was this one harder because we had to make sure everything got out of the way? Almost. Yes. Right. Uh, like like you could not mess up the frames here or. It would start adding up and you would go, oh, this is less good. And I saw also in some behind the scenes footage, some of the actual uh, film archival moments in the film were shot with actual film cameras from the period. That's correct. We and had so- uh, we had uh, a couple of early Bell and Howells. Yeah. Um, we had another one that's escaping my mind, mm-hmm. uh, but uh, period usage. We ran 35 millimeter stock through it. And yeah, uh, yeah so what you see that looks archival Is- might be <laughs> yeah. archival. Also, uh, you know, uh, we actually also use some actual um, Osage uh, uh, home uh, f- uh, home film. Right. Uh, which was uh, fun. And we got to restore a little bit of that, which was uh, really gratifying. That's amazing. Yeah. So we we have a lot to talk about. with this. That's movie. true. Last question, uh, just about your career in general, however, uh, your favorite NPC in Baldur's Gate 3. <laughs> oh, yes. Well, that is directly related to what it is I do. Uh, <sighs> Carlac. All right. just, I mean, yeah, Carlac's kind of the best. One. I mean, I can talk to you about Millias. I have no idea what you're talking don't about. Don't worry about it. I was giving the palate Car- cleanser. Carlac is we... essentially the Millias of, of course. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Put it on the box. That's the pull quote. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, oh, man. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about Killers of the Flower Moon. Oh, me? Yeah. yeah I Matt. guess I should because I have the Internet Movie Database uh, pulled up and. What, you, you know it the best. What yeah. I do, I'm re, I'm going to read it the best. Out of everyone in this room, I know this description the best right now. <clears throat> they say, when oil is discovered in 1920s Oklahoma under Osage Nation land, the Osage people are murdered one by one until the FBI steps in to unravel the mystery. And unravel it, they did. All racism was solved at the end of That's the Osage, right. at the end of the Reign of Terror. We have uh, uh, America has thrived at this point as a harmonious country, uh, bringing and democracy and freedom to, 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 to the rest of the world, home and abroad. And uh, there was never a reason to ever teach anyone about the Osage because it just never happened again. Right. Right. <laughs> Which universe am I in yeah, right now? Oh, yeah. No, uh, no yo, you jumped into the, you jumped in, we, we all jumped for a moment into the better one. Okay. 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 Um, yeah. So this what a um it's funny and again i I go you brought up the work on extra history before it's odd that the work that we're doing over there as well uh is like between it's it's kind of uh the two series that are not going to be next to each other but they all fit in we're doing we did henry ford Mm -hmm. so that takes place a little bit uh you know different part of the country all this stuff but they're still the cars are very prevalent here and like the way that the automobile is treated, et cetera. So the time period is very much in my mind. And then 30 years prior to this film uh, uh, would have been, I believe the death of sitting bull. Mm. Uh, if I'm remembering correctly, which is another, uh, another series that we're working on. Yeah. 
So I think he died in 1890. Yeah. So like this, I, there's a lot of, and, and okay, Corral is sort of mixed in there too. So there's a lot of um, this time period or, or like sort of Western culture milieu uh, uh, in my head. And to see this movie like on the big screen, again, I, I remember I asked you, I'm like, what what should I go see it in? And I already bought my tickets, but uh, I, I think I chose correctly. I was correctly. actually going to text you and ask you the same question. Um, <laughs> no, I went to my favorite I went to my favorite cinema, the Lincoln Theater One. Mm, yeah. Like, that's just what I wanted mm. to see it in. Did you watch it in a Dolby Vision Theater? Did you watch it no, in a... No, unfortunately, I watched it in the local Regal. And actually, the first time I watched it, because um, I did see it twice, uh, I saw it in a closed caption screening. Uh-huh. And I was curious because the cl- it 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 feels like a very quiet film, uh-huh. and the closed captions kind of amplified that because I was reading the film a lot. Um, but I did see it for a second time in a in a standard RPX, and um, and it is it's still quite a film. But but, but yeah, it, no, I was just gonna say yeah. the how fucking refreshing is it to see an incredibly difficult piece of history that I would argue is kept under the rug of most education systems in the United States portrayed with such like, I'll just, I don't even know if this is correct, but like the most grandiose care (laughs) in like what I would consider the biggest way this story could be told to the most amount of people that might need to hear it. Like there's, it was just so nice because it felt like, like, the most grand version of the sliver of the tiny thing that we do in extra history. And it just, it felt, I don't know. It was, it was, I, I walked out of the theater at the end of it. And I was like, obviously there, it's very sad. And there's a lot of uh, nightmarish horror that sort of happened in real life that is talked about and portrayed in this movie. But the fact that it was told in, in the biggest way possible, uh, honestly meant a lot like just from uh, from a from a person who is constantly trying to work at a team to get difficult stories and stories that are not in the u.s education system out there this was so wonderful to just know it existed uh i i don't know i was it was a weird emotional ride of like getting out of the movie being emotionally driven by the actual plot then sort of that knowledge that i just brought up then of course a uh, friend of the show izzy <laughs> I, the first text here I got, I already told read this. The first text I got out of the um, uh, of the movie, I opened up my phone and it was this very fun Thelma meme of like uh, like uh, like a, a person uh, with a or like a haircut wig type thing, like getting out of a bus and dancing. It's like Thelma on the way to the edit. It was just like this loving sort of thing, and I was like, I'm not ready for this right now. <laughs> like i was just i even texted izzy that uh today uh the following day because i was like sorry if i was weird i just got out three minutes ago and there was a lot of feelings yeah um no it's an exquisite film uh i'm looking forward to diving into it but that was sort of my first my first vibe check getting out of it obviously super long didn't feel that way to me uh it's funny i i could clock its length but I was glad for it, mm. if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think mainly because you, when you're sitting for that long, you kind of tend to tend to notice. Um, but uh, yeah, I don't know. I, I I really love this. It's one of my favorite films he's done. I think ever. Not not. I, I'd have to go back and think if that's actually like true for the entire breadth of of his work. It's a lot of films you have to go a lot of films. Against. But like know. it's I don't know. It was very powerful for a mm. lot of different reasons mm. for me. Uh, 
Yeah. I'm curious, actually, how you, you've you seen the film read many, many times over. It, Did you get a chance to see it in a theater with the kind of general audience? With the general audience? Well, I got to see it at Cannes. Okay. That's, that's, that's a French audience. Yeah, I mean, you know. I got to see... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. I, I'm, I'm so confused right now. <laughs> but I'm getting paid $5. That's right. So that's right. It doesn't matter. Go with yeah. it. Um, I've, I've seen it at the uh, at a premiere. Yeah. And... Uh, I did not have the opportunity this weekend to go see it uh, with a general audience. So what, what I'm curious what you think of the film. I think uh, in this time where we are going back and looking at our darker histories, when I say our, I mean, United States in general. I mean, uh, remember there was uh, a big cultural recognition. I don't want to say awakening because that feels cheap when i say it like that but uh with the tulsa race riots mm -hmm. uh when watchman which is me hbo yeah we even show footage from yeah. the from the actual fox newsreels uh, yeah. not that fox yeah um yeah, yeah they, they would they wouldn't have showed that they, uh, <laughs> but um uh you know i i feel that there is an undercurrent here where we in the united states are trying to come to grips with the less savory, um, and, and I don't mean to say that to diminish the horror, um, but I don't think there's a way for me to describe it without using so many adjectives. All the bad stuff, mm -hmm. right? Um, and as filmmakers, Shahir, Matt, I think you guys can agree with it with me. We have a certain level of cultural responsibility. Mm -hmm. Now, we're making movies to make money, mm -hmm. uh, no doubt, but also uh, we're making movies to say something. So it should be worthwhile saying because we're spending a lot of time and money to do it. And there are people out there who don't have the opportunity to say the things that need to be said. Mm -hmm. And this film um, starts saying the things that need to be said. We could not show everything. David Grant in his book, which is fantastic, I do recommend reading, could not say everything. But it starts saying something. So now... Hopefully, there will be more opportunities for Osage to tell the story, to tell their children, to tell strangers who want to learn. And the film, for me, is a journey through that. Right. To at the end, uh, you walk away going, I did not know. I'm a little implicated in this mm -hmm. by virtue of me watching it. We can discuss why I feel that way later. Mm -hmm. And I feel that too often do we walk away with this idea of like cowboys and Indians and like, Oh, it wasn't really like that. Okay, great. But we need to take the next step. How bad was it? Um, what was done? We have to, own up to this. That doesn't mean I'm putting the personal blame on you, but we have to have the conversations and give an opportunity for people who don't have a voice to speak. And I think this film starts that process right. in a way that other films have not achieved. And so my thought of the film is, yay, awesome. I've watched it so many times and it is by real three. I am watching it as an audience member, just in just rap, just in rapture from, from the, the, the circumstances of what's happening, I cannot believe it every time the people involved, how 
evil they are. Mm -hmm. I don't think there's another word, how evil they are, how banal it is, how complicit everybody is in it. And at the end, I don't want to say spoilers necessarily what Hale says at the end where he's like, Oh, you know, they'll forget. It'll just become an everyday common tragedy. Mm. And you as an audience member want to push back and say, no, we're not going to forget. And Ernest says it's not common, it's not common, you know? Yeah. And Hale stands his ground. He goes, Oh, they're, they're going to forget. They're going to forgive. Something mm. else will happen. And you rage against that as an audience member. Like, how could you forget all of that that we just came through, but you realize this is a historically based picture, and we did. Yeah. Yeah. And wow, it makes me feel awful. And then that last shot at the end gives me, and I think everybody who watches it, a sense of hope, a sense of like, despite everything, Osage are still there. Right. And they are, they have a voice. So- I have a complicated uh, relationship with this film. I think I think there's an interesting thing that's been happening, which is that uh, Scorsese's last four films have really been a dialogue between him and the audience and the relationship between his films, which has created an enormous legacy, um, and um, the, the conversation that he has created with an audience over the last 30 years. You know, you look at a film like The Irishman, which really delves into the history of the gangster picture that he is inevitably uh, a major part of. And and this film, you know, uh, I mentioned to you before, I, I spotted three Scorsese appearances, uh, two in voiceover and one in actual physical appearance, but he literally delivers the last line of the film directly to the audience. And Scorsese himself has become and a brilliant performance by the way if you look at that is he's come a long way since taxi driver i i just have to say (laughs) you would not have thought it was the same guy it would definitely not thought it was the same guy but it's a great performance it is a great performance and and it is and i and i think it's more than a performance because it is the meta commentary that he has been doing um so for example in the end of the wolf of wall street where he directly implicates the audience you know selling the pen to the audience and then shows us the audience as, as part of the conversation and i think there's been an interesting conversation around the way he makes films now he's both in the way that i think you've described which is that they're ultimately extremely personal but also he is a filmmaker that you know kind of like kurosawa in many in many ways is building a much grander legacy because his last few films have been enormous in scope and um, in a way commenting on his on his role as a filmmaker with society at large. And you know this 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 fact, uh, th- there's one story that lives rent free in my brain that I always think about, which is uh, I think in 1991-ish, um, Spielberg was you know contemplating directing Schindler's List and didn't quite think he was up to muster to do it so he offered it to a few people to to do and Scorsese was one of them and Scorsese I believe developed it for a period um and wanted to make it but but ultimately felt that it wasn't necessarily his story to tell and handed it you know and said look I think you should do this and, and handed it back to Spielberg conversely an interesting thing was also happening which is that Spielberg was developing Cape Fear at the same time and and then there was this kind of like Maybe maybe the timelines don't quite line up, but they're kind of a, a swap of movies, and I think that swap is really fascinating, um, and it's and it's been repeated a couple of times. Uh, one in Schindler's List and, Ca- and Cape Fear, the other in Catch Me If You Can and Wolf of Wall Street. These are these are four movies that I think are working in concert with each other that are, that have a dialogue between the two Goliaths of American cinema: West Coast and East Coast, Spielberg and, and Scorsese. 
And one thing that Scorsese says about Schindler's List, for example, is that he would have done the ending very differently. And it wouldn't have been the same movie. And there's no, there's no doubt about that. And there's a thing that comes to mind in that conversation that I think about in relation to this movie, which is that they from the book, and I've read the book, um, the book is fully entitled Killers of the Flower Moon, The Osage Murders, and The Birth of the FBI. So there was an entire, there was an entire development of this script, uh, which was from the point of Tom, uh, uh, Tom White. Tom White, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Jesse Plemons character. And yes. it was really about his investigation into the murders. And then it was kind of a murder mystery where we reveal that Tom Hale, now again, this is spoilers for everyone in the audience, but it's not, it's an interesting thing that this film does, which is that it completely removes the mystery and tells you from the very opening few minutes of the film what is going to happen and who and who the the villains are. So initially this was developed with um, Leonardo DiCaprio playing the Tom White character and the film was going to be a kind of not a standard procedural because I don't think Scorsese is capable of delivering anything <laughs> like that, um, but but more in line with like an investigation of what happened. And then there was a conversation that happened at the Osage um, with the Osage where uh, I think it was – uh, Margie Burkhart, who uh, is Ernest Burkhart's granddaughter, mm-hmm. who said something along the lines of, yeah, but there's a thing you got to remember here, which is that Ernest and Molly, uh, Leonardo DiCaprio and Lily Gladstone in the film, were in love. And and the film entirely got rewritten to embody that this as a love story, as a kind of warped love story. Um, and And I think that is a really fascinating... I, uh, reversal that happens because um, the one way I would describe this film, if we were to have it in concert with Scorsese's body of work, is this is dumb fellas. Like this is like these are these are like these guys are idiots. These guys are idiots, yeah. and it is it is a crime film that is uh, in line with Goodfellas, but like with real dum dums, <laughs> a real bad bag of dum dums here. Um, and the front is the front, the <laughs> back is the back. And I don't it, see, and, it, and it's and it's kind of funny in that respect because not not because the tragedy isn't heavy, but because there's such a level of of profound idiocy at play, mm-hmm. but it's amazing how stupid you can be when you get when you can get away with it in the ex- system. Exactly. Which exactly. I don't know if there's anything going on at all in the modern day that we could ever get. Nah, away. Well, nah, and, nah. And, and again, in concert with another film, the the film I thought about was in Casino when they're talking about how the casino floor works and who's watching who. And when you think about Oklahoma or you know the the, the way the Osage County was was set up, there's this kind of like. Who's watching who? You know, like the Osage aren't deemed to be competent enough to handle their own money so that there uh, are appointed guardians, guardians who are then, uh, you know, uh, able to to siphon off the top of the money. But then we see a character who is Lily, uh, who is um, Molly's guardian, um, who uh, then ends up being on the jury to convict Burkhardt as well. Yeah. It's like it's like this really, you know, the casino floor, the casino, the house always wins. Um, but the one big takeaway from me as a film is I think, you know, Martin Scorsese is absolutely incapable of delivering anything, anything but a masterpiece. You know, this is, this is an incredible work of art. I wondered about the storytelling perspective because, and I, and I know that he wrestled with it. I think Leo wrestled with it. I think everyone on the film wrestled with the idea that he's not Osage and that what perspective is he offering? And there was an interesting thing that happened on the red carpet uh, uh, for this film. I don't know if you saw this, but Christopher Coates, who was a language trans, um, language consultant. He was the, the language film. consultant for the film. Yeah. One of them, yes. Yeah. Um, he was on the red carpet talking about this movie and he had something interesting to say, which was really unexpected from a red carpet interview. And it's kind of, kind of taking, um, 
you know, having the conversation. I, I want to say before I play the clip that what I love is that the movie is a conversation. And I think it's a, it's a conversation we should be having. I wondered about the perspective of the film. And the reason I saw it twice was to validate what I felt about the film, which was that in a way, the movie does what I think Christopher Coates uh, comments as a criticism of the film here. Mm. And, I, and I felt it on the first watch and I felt it more on the second watch. And and I want to talk about that. And I want to have a concept. And and I was dreading this conversation because it's not often that we we talk with one of the people who are mm-hmm. working on the film in this way. But I but I wanted to do it. And I wanted to be honest about it and 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 talk about because I, because again, I think another brilliant thing that Scorsese does is create a conversation. Oh yeah, yeah. So could we play the line up that clip from uh, Christopher Coates? You got it. As an Osage, I really wanted this to be from the perspective of Molly and what her family experienced, but. I think it would take an Osage to do that. Um, Martin Scorsese not being Osage, I think he did a great job representing our people. But this story is being told, this history is being told almost from the perspective of um, Ernest Burkhart. And they kind of give him this conscience and they kind of depict that there's love. But when somebody conspires to murder your entire family, uh, that's not love. That's not love. That's that's just beyond that's just beyond abuse. And um, I think in the end, the question that you can be left with is how long will you be complacent with racism? How long will you go along with something and not say something, not speak up? How long will you be complacent? And I think that's because this film was not made for an Osage audience. It was made for everybody not Osage. Uh, for those that have been disenfranchised, they can relate. But for other countries, you know, that have their acts and their histories of oppression, um, this is an opportunity for them to ask themselves this question of morality. And so that's that's how I feel. That's my, that's how I feel about this film. What an unusual thing to say at a at a red carpet for the movie that he's worked on. And I'm 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 very uh, uh, in great admiration of of what he said. Um, the, you know, I think to think about it in film terms, uh, the, the original version of the film, the Tom White version could have been akin to Zodiac, for sure. example, uh, you know, a procedural that gets into the heart of like, who did this? How did they do it? What, what have you? I think the version that came out is, is actually quite in line with Martin Scorsese's previous body of work, which is that he deals with the depth of darkness in humanity. You know, we, we should never forget that all the, most of the central characters in many of his films are terrible, terrible people. And, and there was, I, I you know, it, it's, it's amazing what he's able to do with that. There's yet another version of this film that I'm very curious about. And I, and I was thinking a lot about, which is that ultimately from Molly's point of view, this is kind of like Rosemary's baby. You know, this is a movie where you are uh, being tormented by I your mean, lover. You, you, th- you think about that shot at the end where he walks into the room. Yeah, yeah, exactly. This is Rosemary's, you know, like another version of this film is Rosemary's Baby, where it's from her point, point of view. And there is this paranoia about who is doing this to me. And it, there's a t- kind of terror in the fact that, um, that the people you love are the people responsible for, for your, your downfall. And um, I reread, I didn't bring it with me, but I reread um, the last chapter of the book because I remember when I was reading the book, there's this one startling thing um, that is de- described in the book. So uh, Ernest and Molly's children are uh, Cowboy and Elizabeth. Mm-hmm. And um, they're obviously taken away from Ernest when he 
uh, when he's incarcerated. And there's a passage where uh, David Grant at the end of the book goes back to talk to Margie, uh, who is a uh, 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 cowboy's granddaughter, I believe. And there's this startling paragraph. Uh, I wish I'd brought it with me. But they say something, and this, is, this happens in the movie, which is that it was just pure fate that they weren't killed because on the night of uh, the explosion, they were going to go to uh, Rita uh, and Bill's house. Um, and it, it was just by chance that Cowboy uh, had an earache. Yep. And, and there's a joke made in the film later with another character, I forget the actor's name, where he goes to a lawyer and asks, you know, what would happen if I killed my children? Yes. And, and it's kind of a funny line. It's well, depraved, well, but funny. But, yeah. but depraved, but funny. But there is a, there's an interesting thing to think about here, which is that that was what Ernest would be doing. Had he not been caught, had this not continued, had Molly died, he probably would have tried to murder his children, which was part of the plan. And to depict him, that character, as having a love for, for Molly does get into this really interesting space about like, whose story is this to tell? Now, again, I think... Mr. Scorsese, Martin Scorsese does a brilliant job of creating a dialogue with the audience to have that conversation. And like you say, um, there are a few people who could have brought this to the screen with $200 million and Apple TV and, you know, bring the deal that kind of, that brings this uh, to the screen in a big way with Leonardo DiCaprio. But I, but I, but that was a factor that I did think about a lot as I was watching this movie. There was, there was, so I definitely clocked that as well. <laughs> I weirdly... And it's going to take me a second to get through talking about this. I think that the portrayal of what Ernest would consider love was incredibly honest and human. And it's weird to say that because he's a fucking monster. I think something that this movie does that's very important is it doesn't depict all of its evil characters as mustache twirling fucking movie villains. It depicts them as people. And it's important to remember when thinking about tragedies that have happened to native peoples, African-Americans, just any, any, any group when it is, when, when these things are done, they are done in ways that are so throwaway and callous to the group that is actually like in the, to, from the group that's actually committing them. Um, I don't I mean, we obviously don't know these people that this is based off of, but I found it incredibly effective and kind of important to portray Ernest in that way, because it reminds me. And I'm not saying this to be cute, like how fucked up people are. And this movie is just about a bunch of fucked up people who do evil shit. And it's important for history to remember that they are fucked up people. These are not monsters. This is not hypothetical. This isn't fucking Thanos. Like this is a human being who is comp. You can be incredibly complex and evil as fuck. You might not even realize how evil you are. I go back and we've talked about this in the podcast a bunch. What is more evil? The mustache twirling evil person who's like, I know I'm evil. Fuck you. Or the person that is doing whatever they think and not thinking of another person in a way that's causing them great pain. And the way that Ernest is portrayed in this movie uh, was a fucking important, terrifying reminder of a style of evil that people can do. 
Uh, so I found it like it's weird. Like I agree with the what they're saying in the thing. It was um, in many ways sort of like from his perspective and also she, like was portraying that he loved her. I think the concept of love is also something that we as a society need to fucking stop monolithing. Like you just like love is so different for every fucking person. And that also includes evil fucking people. And it's 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 like. I don't know. I found it as an incredible strength to remind me of the fact how how fucking real this like the the things that happened in this movie are. So I I, I agree with exactly what he said uh, from that perspective. I also really thought it was an incredibly effective way to portray Ernest again, whether or not the the fictional or the, fictional, the historical character is really that way. It was a stark reminder to me as an audience member how evil works in a human being. So I, I don't know. That was my take on it. It's, it's very complex and it's Mr. Scorsese mm-hmm. always trusts the audience. Mm-hmm. He trusts the audience to recognize the problem being put, put in front of them and then will trust them to draw their own conclusions. He's not ever going to tell us yeah. what to think. And I really, I cannot have a higher level of respect than the respect he gives an audience. Yeah, you can, you cannot make a movie like Wolf of Wall Street without a real faith that the audience understands how terrible these people are. Yes, and about forty uh, percent of them got it. Yeah, yeah about forty yeah. percent. <laughs> there is an irony to the fact. That, <laughs> no, no yeah. there is. Yeah. So in this in the in the movie, there's a scene where uh, Henry Roan. Mm-hmm. Uh, next door neighbor to Hale mm-hmm. and a longtime friend, apparently, uh, uh, historically, uh, is uh, drunk and, and dragged from making a scene in town and put out in front of the fireplace. Ernest says, well, why do you take care of this man? And Hale's response mm-hmm. is because that man is my neighbor and he's my friend. Yeah. And he's also fifty thousand dollars mm-hmm. laying right there. I have an insurance policy out on him. Twenty-five. I might, I yeah, 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 yeah. And I might even get a chance at his head rights. Yeah. And um, that line always stuck out to me. Yeah. At some point, Mister De Niro was in an interview and asked, "Well, what is it about Hale that can have these conflicting mm-hmm. things?" And and and. and he essentially responded, I don't understand this character. Mm. And well, first, I think that's an incredible thing for an actor to say, yeah. right? Because uh, many actors spend their time honing their craft in a way as to embody this character, to breathe life into this character, to understand every fiber. And when you have somebody at the level of uh, Robert De Niro just say point blank, I don't understand this guy is because he, the actor, recognized that he, the character based off of he, the historical figure, was so full of contradiction, what had a quote unquote steadfast love of people and then killed them. Mm-hmm. To, like Chris said, how do you, you can't reconcile these two? These these have these have to it's one or the other. It's yeah. it's pure evil. And I think it's it's in that space, in that struggle to um to reconcile these these obvious facts that is the playground where 
um, you know, uh, not speaking for him. This is fan uh, red speaking. It's, that's where Scorsese lives, right? Yeah. Think of Irishman and you know, basically think of any movie. Good it is. Casino. How do you yeah. reconcile this obvious tension? I mean, um, uh, uh, where am I? Age of Innocence. Right. Yeah. Uh, there, there's, there's always this irreconcilable tension that that's the place that we live at. And uh, I think I need to um, admit fully and completely here. I am now a lifetime huge fan of Lily Gladstone. Right. Of course. As a professional in the edit room, I could not look away from just the, I mean, her, it, it, the level of her precision her professionalism, what she delivered, and the conditions under which she, the character, um, is is portrayed, uh, just just absolutely incredible. And I I feel that it's a bit unfair to say, like fan red speaking, a bit unfair to say that this is all from the perspective of Ernest. Now the camera is going to be where the camera is going to be. Yeah. Um. So there's only, but I feel like this film does not work. Without the performance, the delivery, the care, the nuanced deliveries that Lily makes as Molly. Yeah. Because at the end of the day, you're like, what are you doing? Why are you with this guy? And there's the the, the Marjorie uh, attention. Well, she loved him. Yeah. And, you know... Whether or not that's historical at this point becomes less interesting than, boy, there is an irreconcilable difference that we have to live, that uh, we can live in and play with and figure out what the heck is going on with these people's mind. I mean, the Osage were viewed as less than human by yeah. these white towns folks. And, well, how do we reconcile that with all this intermarriage? You know, what is happening here culturally? Like, why is that happening? at some point as an Osage person, you know, that, that your life is going to be in danger if you are in cahoots with the white people yet it still happened. I mean, they're there. What is going on in Oklahoma? Well, I think, I think one of the interesting things, and again, why I think Marty was perfectly suited for a lot of what this movie is doing. For, I, I, I want to stress that as well. I think he delivers the best Martin Scorsese version of this film yes uh and and there is no one better suited to do that than martin because and like in the first few <laughs> minutes um when the oil erupts and the robbie robertson track kind of plays and there's the phantom footage of the um uh the osage dancing in the oil and i was like there is no better filmmaker for this moment right here and in fact then the the kind of montage of the excess and opulence of the wealth in the white voice in in the white voice yeah it's just yeah. incredible uh and i was like there i i'm in no better hands than this moment right here and it, you know like i you know there's very few people you, the the sort of i remember when i saw casino for the first time and the kind of level of wealth and you know just robert de niro's character um, ironing his pants before a meeting, you know, like, you know, hanging. that's the kind of detail that, that Martin Scorsese is interested in and kind of can do better than no human being. And, and I think that, that that's what's interesting in this story is that the, is the idea that the Osage were amongst the wealthiest people on the planet. Yes. Um, you know, not just in America, but on the planet. Yes. And then I think what's fascinating, you know, 
the analysis that comes out of the book and of the film itself as well is the economic incentives that were put in place to allow Hale to do what he did. Yeah. That, that's that's the thing that I think is, you know, when you talk about an irrecon irreconcilable difference between his love of the Osage people and the economic incentive he has to murder them. Mm -hmm. You know, he, his economic incentive is so high. This does not excuse him in any way, by the way. He's an awful human being. But I'm saying there is so much economic incentive it to murder It speaks to the systemic violence. Yeah, to the systemic violence, to the, to the fact that the Osage were not treated as humans, to what Christopher Coates said, you know, the inherent racism and the inherent patriarchy of it all. You yes. Know, which is that women would get married to white men because it was determined that they should be married. Even though these, these you know, beautiful uh, sisters uh, who were independently wealthy didn't need to marry, but they lived in a society which dictated that women should get married and have children. And, and, and I think the movie hints at, or, you know, really gets into play with this kind of economic incentive. And I think, um, Jack Fisk, the production designer, yes. uh, you know, incredible production designer worked many years with Terrence Malick, married to Sissy Spacek, as I understand, um, you know, like does this incredible job of portraying the, both the warmth of the land and the sort of like odd, you know, like when we get into the Mason hall, mm. you know, like the, the, the incredible job of just portraying the stark difference between Molly's home and the Mason Hall, you know, which is all geometry, hard lines, shapes, versus this warmth, oaky kind of texture. Masons, man, <laughs> who would have thought they liked shapes? <laughs> <laughs> who would have thought that, you know, the only line I thought of was as when that scene happened, it was like, uh, what was it? Get Blackie to steal your car? That's a paddling. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, but, you know, like, the movie really, as you say, brings a, a historical point to light, which is that the economic incentives are so prevalent here and so one-sided that that, you know, like we talk about like how do we make these irreconcilable differences? That's what it is. It's the economic incentives. That, that's the way human beings work is that if you incentivize someone to kill someone that they see as the lesser human being, they will do it because human beings are shitty people. And that is what, you know, so Ernst, um, who may profess his love, may, you know, have children, you know, and may, you know, demonstrate all the outward qualities of a human being, of a father, you know, like, as I say, in the book, and as depicted, was going to murder those children yeah. for those head rights, because he was economically incentivized to do so. Um, not, and because he was a monster. Well, he's a monster because he's economically incentivized. He's like, he's, he's an the idiot. The whole town yeah. was economically incentivized, incentivized to sure. harm these people. Yeah, yeah. he's an, he's a fucking idiot. You know, like he's an absolute imbecile. Yeah. And that's, that's, I, you know, I, I hey, think he's not, he's not thick, sir. He's, he's strong. Not thick. I'm not yeah. like, I can he's strong. Read. Yeah. Yeah. But, but, but that, but he was also an imbecile that I don't think had any qualms about the idea that he was going to murder his own children. And I, and I really, I, and, and so when we get into this conversation about whose story to tell, I, I do, I do fundamentally believe. And and again, you know, in on in both viewings, felt that there was, um, there was a weightedness to the way we got to explore Burkhart's kind of morality and his like horror at what he's doing versus the decisions he's made um, in a way that kind of like suggests regret, right? And and against the kind of horror of a woman who loves her husband and has raised a family and realizing that her husband is actually poisoning her, mm -hmm. you know, like, um, it's interesting. I, I was like, I was waiting for, cause I, I didn't know the history, the full history of the individual, the individual people involved at this point. Yeah. Um, I was waiting for the 
like the turn for for him. I was waiting for like the moment where he was where Ernest was going to be like, this is too much and whatever yeah, and whatever. W- w- what is the straw that's going to break right. the back? Right. And then like. It never comes because I think, you know, the other thing is he's entirely, you know, he 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 doesn't view Molly as a full person and he views Hale as a full person whom he's terrified of. Yeah. So yeah. so. It's just an interesting thing where I realized probably about halfway through, I'm like, oh, there's no turn. This is just who this fucking guy is. Yeah. And and imagine the horror, though. So imagine in your family tree, if you knew that your grandfather tried to murder your grandmother, and as Margie describes, the you know, with Cowboy, uh, I think his name is James, the kind of the way that messed him up. Think because he because he because Ernest uh, was paroled after ten years and moved back to the town and lived in a trailer park. Uh, I think he became a sheep herder. Yeah, the, uh, the character that we know as cowboy used to take him to the doctor. Yeah, he would take him to the cowboy because uh, the way uh, it's Margie describes it in the book is that um, I hope I'm, it was Margie. It started with him. I apologize. I didn't. I didn't have the book with. I don't have the book with me. Um, was that he, he yearned for a father? Imagine yearning for a father that you know tried to murder you tried to murder you as a child. Like, you know, like the, the way, and, 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 and there is a, there was another, um, there's an article, uh, a Divray, um, Jacobs, uh, who's an actress, I believe on reservation dogs, yeah. um, tweeted about this film and, um, uh, the tweet got picked up a variety of people are, <laughs> everyone's chiming in as they do. Yeah. But uh, th- this is what she wrote, uh, and I and again I thought it was I, I thought it was interesting. I, I genuinely kind of agree. I I I think Martin Scorsese is too smart a filmmaker to not you know like to not be aware of the conversation that he is creating. I, I think he's a hundred percent in command of and aware of the conversation. And the film is majestic. You know, want to put that out there. I saw it twice. Had no qualms about it. Would see it a third time. Would see it a fourth time. Would you uh, see it 50 plus times? I, I, so we, we, last week we talked about Heat, Michael Mann's Heat, which oh, is yeah. a film that I've probably seen 20 or 30 yeah. times and is on high rotation because I just find that there's so much to, to be in there. Uh, this year we talked about Oppenheimer being one of those movies that I think would become one of the the sort of repeat viewing mm-hmm. movies. Spotlight's another movie like that for me. Um, this would be one of those movies as well. This would be a movie I'd be happy to revisit. Uh, a friend of mine, uh, I, I invited to the film, couldn't make it. Uh, and I said, don't worry, it'll be on Apple TV. You can come over. We'll do it. We'll, we'll make a night of it. Yeah. Um, but Divray Jacobs mm. wrote, uh, wrote this. And I, I want to um, read this out. Uh, being native, watching this movie was fucking hellfire. Imagine the worst atrocities committed against your ancestors, then having to sit through a movie explicitly filled with them and with the only respite being 30 minute long scenes of murderous white guys talking about and planning the killings. It must be noted that Lily Gladstone is an absolute legend and carried Molly with tremendous grace. All the incredible indigenous actors were only re- the only redeeming factors of this film. Give Lily her goddamn Oscar. But while the performances were strong, if you look proportionally, each of the uh, Osage characters have felt painfully underwritten while the white men were given way more courtesy and depth. Now, I can understand Martin Scorsese. This is a long thread, by the way. Now, I can understand Martin Scorsese's technical direction and compelling and seeing a $200 million on screen is a sight to behold. I get the goal of the violence is to add to the brutal shock value that forces people to understand the real horrors that happen to this community. But 
I don't feel that these uh, very real people were shown honor and dignity in the horrific portrayal of their deaths. Contrarily, I believe that by showing more murdered Native women on screen, it normalized the violence committed against us further and dehumanizes our people. And to top it off, we see that the film nerds celebrating and eating this shit up, it makes my stomach hurt. Um, you know, I think that, you know, I don't agree with everything in that tweet and I don't want anyone to tweet at her or anything like that. But what I want to do is engage in the conversation that she is, that she is reacting to this film. And I think that is a, you know, her country, her response to the film is a very valid response. Yeah. And I think, again, there is a complex, um, complex dialogue that this film has with the audience because in many ways, uh, as someone who is an immigrant to America, but, you know, an American now, uh, we talked about this in Michael Moore's film. Um, uh, I forget the name of the film, but how he went to Germany to try and steal some of their best ideas. Oh, it's the invasion movie. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Where to like, invade next. Yeah. And, and he talked about the fact that in reckoning with the Holocaust, German uh, children are taught about it. And it is, you know, like enshrined in stone so that people know about it. As we've all discussed in this in this uh, podcast, this story is not that well known, you know, let alone the Trail of Tears, uh, the Tulsa riot massacres. And I think the more that we create this dialogue, the, the systematic erasure well, of not only native peoples who were here before uh, yeah. the Europeans became, but the like erasure in wars, erasure in massacres, erasure in in like cultural just uh, deletion yeah. in the way that the United States government took children away from parents. You yeah. don't, you don't uh, get off the hook, Canada. I'm honestly, uh, also Canada. Yeah. yeah. But, but like, but you know, the whole, the whole the thing colonizers. Is, yeah. It's, it's, it, it, it's but like, yeah, it's, it's literally in every possible way. Yeah. Uh, and 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 it's it's a complex dialogue. It is. It, it brings up a lot of emotions. You know, I'll, I'll tell you. Uh, I'll start off as a professional. I'll finish mm. personally. So, um, uh, unprofessionally, <laughs> I don't. Um, at this point, I don't really care about individual critics mm -hmm. because uh, I've already showed it to the audience I was most worried about, and that was the Osage community. The Osage community, and um, I felt such a mix of emotions because we showed it at an AMC on several screens. Um, you know, inviting people to essentially watch their direct ancestors, mm. their relatives get murdered on screen, whether mm. the names have been changed to the innocent or not. I mean the implication and the way the violence is shown is uh, simultaneously shocking and banal right yeah. there's there's a mix of it um i think and and part of it is because it was so nor normalized then uh and it, it it was such a hard thing to watch people i you know you know are emotionally connected to this story um, whether the knowledgeable or not of it, walk, walk, walk through, uh, watch it and walk through it. And you're, you're asking people to reopen wounds that were never closed properly. Mm. The fact that we had an overwhelming response uh, that was positive uh, for me is more important than any professional critic right. at this point. Uh, now, professionally, mm. um, it's, it's a, it's, it was a, it's a hard, 
you have to frame a narrative. Mm -hmm. You know, this as a, a filmmaker, as a storyteller, you have to choose not only a perspective, but you have to frame it in something. And, and you know, like, Boy, oh boy, a love story is probably the most dangerous way you can choose to do it. But um, I admire, I admire the cojones, by the way. They're, they're, <laughs> but you have to make something accessible for that people will want to want to watch it, right? If if uh, it, it's 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 like, well, if I was to, and my mother always gets so beat up whenever on these podcasts, doesn't she? <laughs> yeah. If I if I was if I was to take my mom to the movie, she's like, well, what is this movie about? Right. And I say, well, it's about uh, all these murders and the eradication of a peoples that have been whitewashed through uh, a lack of education mm. in our history. She's like, well, I don't like that sounds awful. I don't want to watch it. Yeah. And how can I relate to this personally? You know, as an audience member and here where, again, we start doing things is where I go now to the non-professional fan, there are things that are constantly reminding us in the film that we are, uh, we are earnest. Mm -hmm. We are hale. We are complicit. We are not Osage. We are to this day living with the benefits of the exploitation of, of many peoples. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I think that's who the, you know, in a weird way, that's who the movie's for. Like to be, to remind us that this shit is real. It happened and you are benefiting from it right now. You have to deal with this. And then hopefully, you know, we've now opened a door. You know, I, I keep hearing for some reason the expression interior lives. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And yeah. hopefully we've opened the door to show interior lives now. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the film can only be about so many things in a three and a half hour runtime, mm -hmm. right? Three hour, 20 minute runtime right so you're gonna have to choose and you're gonna have to choose a framework that you know is compelling that works that allows for you to engage on it on a interpersonal on a humanitarian level yeah. where do you go how do you do this and i have to say i there is no small feeling of guilt that i have as a person who you know, may, may, you know, participated in film storytelling like this, that does, that does pain people to reopen these wounds. Yeah. Um, and I'm not pretending that, um, that uh, it doesn't bring up a whole series of mixed complex and v various hurtful feelings. Uh, and that all we have to do is get through it and we'll be better on the other side. Cause that's not true. Um, and I'm, you know, like, and, and so what we're, what we as the audience are trying to do what the movie, I think is leading us to is to try to create these conversations, like you said, so that we can now talk about these things. We can now go, Oh, is there a first person's, uh, uh, a first nations filmmaker that I can go out and watch mm. and learn more about this or learn more about uh, that? Or, you know, what, what the fuck? is head rights. Yeah. Like I, I, I want to go out and now learn about this and to get more involved in this, uh, this, um, what I'm sick and tired of, if I may be tangential as an audience member is I'm not going to call anybody out personally, but like this idea that we just keep remaking the same kind of Western over and over again, mm. where, uh, we're pretending to empower peoples, but we're, we're not really. And yeah. I hate that. And 
uh, I think this film says, okay, look, we're going to, we're just going to scratch open a lot of stuff. Right. And, you know, uh, if you're not reacting to it, then we weren't successful. Exactly. Yeah. There's not to make this all about me. Um, it is though. Uh, so it's the only, Oh, sorry. Podcast. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. 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 About Maddie. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I've said many times on this podcast, cause we've talked about, um, you know, perspectives from various cultures and if we feel like we belong to certain groups and etc and i've said a few times to you shahir that like i don't feel like i have any like cultural basis in any group that i am a part of and that's still very true I've, and i have disagreed with that several times over. yeah 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 uh I, I i i'm talking about just like i don't well you you may you can't disagree with how i feel no i can't disagree with how i feel yeah. but i but i do disagree that you don't have a culture sure the, the I have I have cult, there are mm-hmm. cultures that have affected and yeah. crafted me and literally the the uh, the reason why we're sitting here my ancestors uh, did terrible shit to other people to get us here there is a culture there right. I'm saying I don't identify uh, like in my mind is like oh like my Polish heritage or my whatever da 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 um oftentimes I think and this movie kind of was a was a uh, another sliver that kind of opened a door. Uh, because it's, you know, I don't, I'm sure there's lots of value there somewhere, Mm -hmm. but the bad things that I know are there too, I don't really like is never something that I want to be like, Ooh, I want to go figure out this thing and da, 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 da. Um, something I was reading as we were starting off, uh, uh, before the podcast and I didn't know this, uh, that, uh, Lily Gladstone, I believe it's Blackfoot. Mm-hmm. Uh, from the Blackfoot Nation. Yeah, I don't know if she's a, a member of the nation, but I believe that she is a Her descendant ancestry. of Blackfoot. Yeah. Um, so, and I have to, again, I never dig into any of this, but the one thing I do know that I have been curious about, but I never dig into, et cetera, is uh, I am, I believe, one sixteenth Blackfoot right. uh, from my grandmother's side. Um, and... Watching, you know, I, I'm not this is not me saying I relate to that in any fucking way. Of course not. But what the, the this kind of opened up for me while watching was the f- and obviously different, different uh, native nation and, and all of that jazz. But it opened up something where I was like, no, I should go learn about that. Right. Like. And. It's funny. I was thinking about that after I watched the moment that I was reading and that, that she was a, a senator of that as well. I was just like, okay. Like, and I think that th- all that is saying, I was making a joke. It's not about me. The point that I'm trying to make is <laughs> the movies like this have the ability, I think, to better not only people's understandings, but people in a weird way it moves the it like things media art we all know can move a needle even if it's infinitesimal etc um and to the point of your mom example i'm sorry mom yeah but <laughs> she's getting, listening to the podcast getting butts in seats that need the fucking medicine is an effective way of having it go down yeah. um like I am now also interested in 
uh, I would love to hear an Osage like telling of this from from mm. their actual from from an Osage uh, filmmaker. Like that would be. You should check out Chris. Yeah, yeah. Like. But the like, it, what you said, interior lives. It has opened the door to people thinking about it on a level that, even though everyone should have been, people mm-hmm. were not. Yeah, there's yeah. a lot of questions that I have that aren't uh, satisfied by the film. Like one of the questions that I have as a viewer is like, why is everybody just like marrying the white people? Sure. Yeah. That was, I, I was having a, uh, right. what is that? What is that reason? Is there some other cultural thing that I'm not yeah. knowing? Is it just because they're new and it's like a way out or I, I'm left with questions and the, and the film does not answer it. Um, I think the film kind of implies a possibilities. I think also, uh, and this would be grossly understudied by me <laughs> if I, on the statement that I made, but there is a, uh, an, an idea, I think in anthropology that native American tribes operate fundamentally in a way that is in opposition to capitalism. Yes. No, it's, it's about giving. Yeah. It's a, and and, (laughs) and so an acceptance into a tribe, you know, while there are barriers to entry, if you are not Osage, uh, the communities are, you know, and if you go to any indigenous population in the, on the planet, um, often there is an invitation to come experience another culture. And, and I, 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 again, this would be grossly, grossly understudied by me, uh, and less understood even. But I, I haven't, you know, like, uh, you, you are wearing glasses though. So <laughs> kind yeah, of I trust you. And I'm going to push them up, and I speak with a funny accent. But um, for example, in Terrence Malick's The New World, there's a conversation that John uh, Captain Smith has where he's, where he talks about the the rituals of the native tribes, mm. which are, you know, like they there's no sense of position because there is a sense of community and head rights in many ways is about that because the, the idea of the head rights was that they were owned by the entire community and they could not be sold, uh, which is why Hale came up with this plan to intermarry and then therefore uh, be bequeathed the head rights through, you know, through being part of the tribe. Literally and in fact, using his, a cultural kindness basis to yeah. fuck them over. Yeah, and in yeah, fact, yeah, his, yeah. you know, like we talk about the irreconcilable differences, you can argue that that part of the the scheme and the manipulation was to become fully embedded within the Osage and you as much as possible. You see it reflected in the in his language the, abilities. You know, like his his ability. You know, yeah, that prayer that he says. Yeah, um, Wakanta, also, Wakanta. Yeah, yeah when I, when they're at the um, at the wedding. The uh, I'm thinking of the meeting with the uh, elders. Mm. Yeah, where uh, the character of Chief uh, uh, Paul Red Eagle. Yeah, um, starts talking about you know these. Uh, it's a pejorative of these Estaje. Yeah. Right. Um, he refers to these people as, you know, pejoratively as white people, but like sitting right there is Ernest and Hale. Whose friendship and, has always been appreciated. And also, uh, you know, also a few other uh, yeah. white folk who, yeah. who at this point are like viewed as like, Family, right? You'll add a thousand dollars to that bounty. Yeah. That is such a, when on the second watch, on the second watch, isn't that such an interesting scene? Yeah, because you're like, oh, that son of a bitch, yeah. got you have to come to, to me. me, yeah, exactly. So he can get all you Which, like, oh, you sneaky. That is the one smart thing you did. Well, you know, like <laughs> uh, again, to to use the old fable, um, uh, the scorpion and the frog, yes. as in Drive, and I believe in the trial. Um, uh, you know, it is, it is within one's nature 
to bite the frog, to to, yes. to sting the frog. It's just very <laughs> even even at the detriment of one's own uh, health. I I, I want to come circle back on this conversation of culture to round us. Yeah, we out. need to start talking about the films. <laughs> well, I eventually, get, I, I get. I think the film is masterful. <laughs> I love that it has this dialogue. I do feel uh, I as a viewer felt that um, the opportunity to to give Molly voice was one that the film didn't do, not necessarily um as a um not necessarily because it was unaware of that but but chose the path that it chose and does it very well and i agree with you that the film is a conversation mm. and and you know again the legacy of martin scorsese is that he has created many conversations and often those conversations are misinterpreted i was not a fan of wolf of wall street on first viewing i have since watched it three or four times and come to love it more and more the more i've watched it and reversed my opinion on that movie uh, several times over because of because of the repeated Mr. Viewing. Scorsese makes films that need to be digested, <laughs> reflected several. upon. You need to age a little bit. The film needs to age a little bit. It's like a wine. Oh my! Like the amount of times you know that I've watched Casino mm-hmm. over and over again, and I get something new out of it every time. And I think and and my my interpretation, my reading of the characters change every time and i love rewatching it yeah silence you know we we got to uh, go to a screen with you i've watched silence three or four times and it's every time i've changed my opinion on that movie <laughs> and like thought about it differently yeah i i want to you know we talked a lot of, at the at the start of this conversation about um scorsese's mastery of cinema and the mastery of cinema comes is because of his love of cinema Mm. And, and, and we talked about the interior, you know, you guys were talking about the interior lives. Um, I, I haven't had him on the show. I do know him. Um, I would love to get him on the show, but Matt Singer, who's the author, uh, published his book today called Opposable Thumbs, How Siskel and Ebert Changed Movies. Yes. And Ebert mm-hmm. had a famous quote about movies, which leads to this interior lives conversation, which is that movies are the greatest empathy machine that was ever created. Mm. And, and when we talk about the interior lives, we're talking about the fact that an audience can, you know, through the process of, psychological transference through cinematic manipulation through emotional manipulations cinema has the power the capacity like literature like painting but in many in in very profound ways create empathy with monsters with people that we admire that it is a window it is an invitation to to um to uh, be in dialogue with a movie, with, with a film, and transport ourselves into the into into something else. So I think you know, like for me, you know, I'm uh, New Zealand, Indian, Fijian, American, you know, like a big mixture of stuff, and very uneducated about my history as well. Uh, but the one thing I am very confident in is that I worship at the altar of cinema, and I love cinema. And cinema is kind of like the foundation of what I would conceive my culture, even probably obnoxiously so. Um, but but. I think that that, you know, when you watch someone like Scorsese talk about cinema, you, uh, for me, I recognize that, that, that I hope I could talk like him about movies in 60 years time, you know, on his like, rock, you'll build your church. Yeah. And, and, and you know, like, uh, he is the grand Mason and I am Leonardo DiCaprio being beaten over the butt. <laughs> Why, wow. Like, okay. You went a different way than I was going. Yeah. But okay. Hey, hey, whatever floats your boat. Yeah. Um, but, but, you know, I think, you know, as you were talking about interior lives, I think for me to close out my thoughts, there was an real, I wonder about the Rosemary's Baby version of this film. Mm-hmm. I wonder about the other version of this film that, that wasn't on screen. And I, and, and a lot of it for me came to, I really got a sense of the interior life of Ernest Burkhart. I really got a sense of the interior life of William Hale. 
I felt I didn't get us into the interior life of um, of Molly Burkhardt. And and I and I watched it. Can I can I ask you a question? Sure. And it's not the pushback. I'm, I'm, I'm genuinely interested. Yeah. I'm genuinely interested. What is it about Molly that you felt like you didn't get as much as say? There's a there's a there's say a factor Ernest. of the movie that um, of course she is sidelined for almost a you know three quarters of the movie because of uh, her you know she's incapacitated yeah. by Ernest Burkhardt. Yeah. Um, I think if you watch the movie. You know, as Devere uh, did um, proportionally, we are invited to navigate the decisions that Ernest Burkhardt is making throughout the entire film. You know, like how do I find this person who's going to kill this? How am I going to get this guy to do this? How am I going to like, you know, I, I do love this woman, and, and it's going to be interesting to mar to marry her. Uh, you know, I'm going to put Anna in a car with my brother, who says uh, it's time to take her home now, which he knows what a, you know what that oh that means. that that bit yeah. of actors yeah it's incredible business that that looks oh. I'm invited into the interior decision making, and there is no one better than Martin Scorsese at inviting us into the interior lives of monsters, which is yeah. why I wondered about his version of Schindler's List. Yeah, um, I don't feel watching the film that I am invited to the interior life. And and the best thing I can approximate here is, you know, I, the movie I think about is Rosemary's Baby, which is the paranoia of wondering, is the person I love responsible mm -hmm. for the things that are happening to me? Yeah. And and the and the fear that and the the absolute terror that that must that that must bring. I I I didn't feel an interiority to understanding that and I felt, and this might just, you know, being a filmmaker as well, hmm. that that is what I was interested in seeing more of. Yeah. You know, I, I, the reason why I ask is, yeah, is twofold. Course. First fold, uh, in no way should we be, uh, anybody listening to this podcast mm -hmm. should think that uh, Lily is anything but best actress material. Oh, she, okay, you know, she's uh, best actor. As, as you were talking about it, and sorry to interrupt, but um, the way I would describe her from an indigenous, from a Polynesian uh, country is that she has mana. She carries so mana in Polynesian communities is that she carries herself with a weight that must be respected. Yes, and and you feel that like in every scene that's that she's in. That's the first scene that we that's in. Well, when we first started introducing her, like actually, it's it's that voiceover where yeah. she's listing these murders, evil uh, is these, all around me, surrounds yeah. me, surrounds oh, my heart. Well, yeah, that's yeah, but mm. that's later on, yeah. right? But she's just listing these names and how there was no investigation. Yeah. It's the first time we hear her voice. Then we go in and we're in Pitt Speedy's office who, uh, you know, is like a Klansman and blows my mind. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, hey, hey, Ernest. Yeah, hey, Ernest. Weirdest. Uh, that, that, that floor mat, uh, I learned that. Yeah, was it uh, kept or? Yeah, Kiggy. It's Kiggy. Klansman, I greet you. Right. Like, yeah. that's another one of those little details that, like, you yeah, have yeah. to be. Yeah. Like, if you're with people who know what that means. Yeah. Question that. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> but um, it's uh, when, when we first see her, the contempt mm. that she has for not only the man, but for having to say incompetent. incompetent. Yeah. And the way she delivers it, I feel like every time she's in a scene, uh, and this could just be me as a viewer. Every time she's in a scene, I feel like I'm just drawn into her and I am feeling her emotions over everybody else. Mm. Uh, and that's that's why that's why, like, yeah, you know, by screen time, you're, you're absolutely right. But I, I feel like I there's just I'm just every time she's on screen. Is it like quality versus her. quantity? of? <laughs> well, no, I'm not trying to even break no, it down to that, but I feel like there, there's there's a there's a there's a weight 
to her to 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 Molly. Yeah. That that is being expressed through Lily's performance that for some reason me red the audience member is drawn to and empathizes with far and above Ernest and 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 uh and Hale. So this the sequence when she you know like I think there's one sequence where we see the decision making process for her which is when she decides to go to Washington DC and she yes. meets with the president. And and it is a frustrating experience. Great Calvin Coolidge, by the way, yeah, right? Really, and that's Great where we Calvin also hear uh, Scorsese's voice again as the photographer. Um, but uh, she, you know, the absolute frustration of having to ask for the money, be denied the money, leave your children with a man you are starting to suspect may be poisoning you, go to Washington, D.C., talk to a president who really doesn't seem to give a shit. Hello. And then, and then walk away. Um, and also be aware that the the only way to make this happen is by you know uh, paying twenty thousand dollars to it. To and you know the other amazing thing is that you know I just recently rewatched uh, Bong Joon Ho's Memories of Murder. Oh yeah, and thinking about um, the the entire part of the story, the book that 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 Scorsese and DiCaprio and Eric Roth kind of flip out and completely discard was that this is you know the book is really about the formation of the FBI. That's you know? right, and and you know the 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 sort of bringing together. Of forensic and uh, invest forensic and embedded investigation, you know, like well, this is more than that. It's also a, a very clever political maneuver, yeah. in order to establish themselves as a preeminent federal force, yeah, right. So, like but one that beyond the uh, solving of the most age murders has a incredibly complicated history with perpetrating some terrible crimes within, and, and Hollywood has depended on, yeah. For its media money-making machine for a very long time. And, you know, like even just to talk about the movie in concert with itself, uh, you know, Leonardo DiCaprio has played um, FBI <laughs> director in, it wasn't The Good Shepherd, but it was in uh, J. Edgar, right? The yeah. Clint Eastwood uh, film. Yes. Yeah, and yeah. then there was, a, and then De Niro did The Good Shepherd with Damon. That's correct. Uh, you know, so there's like, you know, again, Scorsese has been so far around the block that it's it's e easy for it to kind of see these like beautiful connections here. Um, yeah, I, I look, I I feel that that there there is an interiority to Molly's character that is not on the you know not as weighted and is and and I wanted to see more of it. But I like do I, too. I, I I'm I'm looking forward to that film. Yeah. I am, I cannot wait till that film is being made. And but like I said before, with uh, you know Wolf of Wall Street for what have you. Um, there are many films of his that I have, you know, reevaluated over time. And, and as you say, like have uh, changed my opinions on the more I've watched them, because that's the kinds of films he makes, yeah. um, you know, Casino, you know, it's it's I think uh, it is very easy to forget that the main character in most of Scorsese's films are, are monsters. Yeah. Oh, I, I don't, I don't forget that. That's well, one of the, that's most one of the, Scorsese and many, uh, yeah. Scorsese's films. Yeah. yeah. Uh, it's funny. We're just talking about sort of like, if there was, if there was something, if there was moments that I wish I got more of weirdly, it would be, uh, it would be more of a uh, Cara Jade Myers, Anna. Mm -hmm. And she's specifically, she's amazing. She's specifically, uh, with, um, I'm going to butcher this name, but Batantu uh, Cardinal. 
the mother? Yeah. Lizzie? Uh, with Lizzie mm-hmm. Q. Yeah. yeah. Because that was stated like, oh, that they're the favorite. Then there's a cuddle. Oh, yeah. A, a I love that moment. Yeah. And that moment is so like we don't get, in my opinion, enough of it to like I. I would love to understand the family dynamics uh, of of them going on again. The, you know, the, hopefully that's a, a film that is. Going but this to- movie is so rich that the Lizzie's passing is an extraordinary moment. Oh yeah, yeah. You know, and it's so sit up, it's like and it, it, it's it's sit up and payoff in in screenwriting yeah. is just incredible. You know, like we see the owl. Um, the owl means you know death is coming, and then that is not what she sees at death. She sees her ancestors, mm-hmm. uh, and then she's taken away with a smile. And it is, you know, and then and punch- the shot holds yeah. for this yeah. it's beautiful, yeah. beautiful length of period for you to process what's going on. And you know, like it is rare for certain people who shall remain nameless to show what happens after death. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, and here we are lingering on it. Well, you know, Scorsese, uh, his his actual um, relationship with um, religion and spirituality, I think, is something also that, like, you know, if you forget, he at one point wanted to become a priest, um, mm-hmm. and instead became a filmmaker, which I I love. Um, you know, like his films are an interplay with not just the spiritual, but like, you know, not the spiritual in the sense of one religion, but like in this idea of like, what is the aftermath? You know, you forget the guy made Kundun. Yeah. You know, like he made one of the great films about the Dalai Lama, you know, um, that, that almost got, uh, you know, Disney banned from China, I think, or stopped his distribution forever. But that's, that's who we're talking about here. You know, like the, the guy makes movies. And, and so when I say that, you know, I, you know, I don't love every single one of his movies, but I all, I admire everything he does. Mm -hmm. You know, like I have such a great deep respect for everything he made. And, there is so many incredible moments of beauty in this movie and such a rich tapestry. And it's, and you know, this conversation about how long the movie is, you know, we talked about it with the Irishman. Is it a conversation? It is, I a, really... conversa- it is a conversation about like, how long is this, you know, should a movie be, you know, like Alexander Payne, I think is in the news this week talking about like movies are too long these days. <laughs> um, but, uh, get back on the TikToks. There's not a, you know, I, <laughs> I, I felt the length, but I like, and I was worried when I went to see it a second time, I was like, I'm going to have a much more relaxed experience the second time because I know the length of the movie. I'm sitting here writing notes and get some and, mac and cheese balls. And, and I was like, oh, you know, I, in the second view, cause in the first viewing I did like, I did a safety pee. I was like, you know, like I was making sure that I was completely drained before the movie started. Mm-hmm. But the second time around, I was like, ah, oh, you know, like if I walk out and, you know, to go to the bathroom, sat completely still riveted in my seat, the entire movie. And, and I was like, at the start of the movie, I made this mental note to myself. I was like, in the first conversation with Hale, I was like, okay, to the back end of this movie, we're going to have this incredible scene with Brendan Fraser. So I'm going to like, sort of just clock how far, you know, like the distance between those two things. And then before I knew it, I was at the Brendan Fraser scene. And I was like, holy shit, the movie just happened. You know, yeah. it was just like, there's not a frame of this that I think... I was, okay, so this is a terrible, <laughs> terrible, and I apologize to the internet, but you're going to love this. <laughs> the first couple of times we're watching the cuts, right? Uh, again, uh, this is me trying to be professional, but like by real three, I stop watching for the content that I'm supposed to be watching just for, kind of, and I'm just watching the movie. Yeah. But I tried to explain it to uh, uh, to uh, Jared, uh, uh, Robbie Robertson's um, a longtime assistant. Uh, yeah. That, Rest in peace, Robert. Yeah, Robbie. he, uh, he, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Uh, 
that watching this film is like watching a Bob Ross episode. Like (laughs) you just see all of like, what's going on? Why are there's these things happening? Like there's these colors going on and there's, they're smearing across the canvas and now the palette knife's coming out. And then, uh, all of a sudden, you're like, holy shit, it was a mountain the entire time. Mm-hmm. That's a lake. Oh, my God. Where did that all come from? I just watched it for the first 15 minutes. It was just color. But now that's a fully formed picture. What is happening? When Tom White shows up. Yeah. Man in the hat. Yeah. The man in the <laughs> hat. Yeah. Oh, like it just takes off like a rocket where now I'm watching it in real time. Meanwhile, back calculating everything that I just watched. And then, like, yeah, so. you know, like having read the book. I think the amazing thing with with Tom White's uh, investigation is how much he embedded people within the community. Yes. And did it before he got there. Yeah. Well, before we even see him, there are characters that are turned up that are part of his investigation that we don't, we're not aware. And it's like only on a repeat viewing that you're like, oh, that's the guy who who sold fire insurance. We we haven't even talked about the sort of Hieronymus Bosch sort of like painterly fire sequence. And, um, it's just too much to talk about. Oh, just as you were talking about, like, is the Bob Ross painting? I was like, I was thinking about today the fact that Scorsese played Picasso in, in, in Kurosawa's <laughs> yes. Dream. Yes. Oh my god! And he describes, you know, the the art of painting. And I was like, yeah, it makes sense that 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 man is the man who makes these movies. You know, like who has a deep understanding with the profound, uh, the sacred and the profound. Yeah. Um, and and uh, you know, like, yeah, the. We, it's it, we are so fortunate to be living in real time already established one of the great legacies of cinema yeah um and it, you know i don't mean to be morbid and sort of talking about it that way but i'm sure he's aware and you know like the irishman is is nothing but an eulogy to his entire career and to you know the kinds of films that he wants to make and, and to, to aging and what have you so it's a, like it's it 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 makes me giddy that we we're going to get more Scorsese films, you know, but you know, in the next few years, and we are talking about one of the great legacies. Quentin Tarantino, you know, has talked about his, his famous t- ten. Ten, his yeah. ten. I've heard of him. Yeah, yeah. He's talked about. Have his, you heard of this guy? Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. His famous ten, and you know, he, how many we, toes he got? <laughs> when he's talking about his <laughs> Most famous of us. ten, <laughs> you know, oh, he's, true. He's really talking about like Alfred Hitchcock. Yeah, you know, he's talking about the fact that Alfred Hitchcock's last few films weren't that great. And it's like, I was just thinking that in stark contrast to what Martin Scorsese has been making in the last few years. It just gets richer and richer. Richer and richer. And like those, the last four that you've worked on are incredible movies. Coincidence. Yeah. Purely coincidence. I, I ev- wake up every day giddy and happy that I'm going to go work on, even in the smallest little bit, a Martin Scorsese yeah. picture. Uh, I love with, that with Thelma. a Martin Scorsese picture. Yeah. And, you know. <laughs> And of course, uh, you know, my, my, uh, the others that I work with regularly, Scott Brock and uh, Marianne Bauer, who have been around much longer than me, uh, they, they're just such a rich environment of yeah. such aware people. And the fact that we're making a Martin Scorsese picture mm. is, is incredible. And I, I love that. And I love the fact that it'll just keep happening for as long as it can happen. Well, let's hope there are a few more. I know that there's at least five more. At least five more. There's <laughs> like top, there's five seven, more. maybe. Yeah, I might yeah. be pushing it. But, but uh, well, I, I often, you know, because De Niro's done ten with them. Mm. Of course, uh, DiCaprio's done six. Yeah, I, I can't. So count I think higher DiCaprio's got to get like four more in. Just sneak him <laughs> in. in. Well, technically five if he wants to win. You, yeah. you know, you, know uh, you were talking about collaborators. I mean, the collaboration, you know, yeah. between Thelma and Marty. I mean, there's also the collaboration. It's that spirit of collaboration that ignited between 
uh, De Niro and DiCaprio working with Marty and then amongst themselves. It's just the, it's like a fire of like awesome creation happening. When was the last time you saw De Niro this engaged? Let me, uh, can I tell you, can I tell you a story? I'm going to tell you, I'm going to tell you a story. Yeah. I watched this movie, uh, the New York premiere with my wife. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> and, uh, great to hear it. So I, uh, I, I did my best. I, I really wanted her to see this. I really wanted her to see this. I thought this was going to be a movie that, that would connect. And I, I don't really rare, uh, rarely do I sit in the audience at the premiere. Normally I'm up in the projection booth. I wanted to be there and I'm sitting next to, uh, Phil Stockton, uh, uh, one of the re-recordists, uh, league dialogue editor. Lead, I mean, just this, this man has made incredible films and, and, and so I'm, I'm sitting there, I'm, I'm, I'm excited and Anastasia is watching it and she's really digging it. And at the end, the first thing that she says to me was, I didn't realize that was Robert De Niro until like the sixth <laughs> scene because Bob transformed himself in such a way and allowed himself to appear weaker, more vulnerable, subtler than he has been in a, in, in a long time. And that's not to say he hasn't done it before. He, yeah. he has, but like, man, he, he really transformed himself. He really himself showed up for this movie. For yeah. that. And, yeah. and like the, that prayer that we were referring to yeah. earlier, where yeah. it's the gigantic tracking shot yeah, yeah. out uh, on the dolly yeah. and going up and it's, you know, Wakashi, yeah. Wakashi. Yeah. Um, the, the, there wasn't enough prayer right. to, to, to the, the drone was going to, back to, to, um, to extend. So yeah. we, and, and he was like, we need more prayer. He, he wanted more yeah. lines in Osage right. because he was drinking it up. And like every time there's a line in Osage is because he's asking to, he, he is so engaged in it. Mm. And by the end, you know, that, that, that end, like, you know, he's just now we've seen his character be revealed and transformed. And yeah. so he allows himself the physicality uh, to be and, revealed and transformed. Oh, very and the, good. the fire sequence is no bitter metaphor for the devil in town. Oh, you my know goodness. I mean? Also, serious props to Rodrigo Prieto for yeah. that. That was some that shot. I mean, yeah. the whole film has incredible photography. Yeah. I am I am honored to have worked with this gent a few times. Uh he didn't bring his A game. He brought his A plus game to this. His S tier game. His S tier. This is S. This is serious S tier. He's playing with, um, you know, in addition to the the usual anamorphic primes. He even purposely like went out and got like some Petzval lenses to emulate uh, the older kind of less evenly ground yeah. lenses. And then on top of that, he went through and like started like experimenting with all these different kind of stock looks and him and Yvonne Lucas, the colorist worked in pre-production for months and actually ended up contracting a guy that could write LUTs for the baseline oh, themselves. Cool. Yeah. Um, so that they could have these permanent looks already developed, ready to go. Um, Can I tell you about the Rodrigo Prieto story? Like, the first time I noticed him was the 25th hour. Uh, you remember that uh, movie? Spike uh, Lee's movie. Uh, and there's a uh, sequence on the trading floor with Barry Pepper, who's like, he's got a squishy ball or something like that. And he puts a mirror on the lens. And so you get this like strange reflection that's happening. And I was like, no director other than Spike Lee would let that happen. And nobody like nobody else other than Rodrigo Prieto would, would, would do that. It's, it's, it's so funny. Like those mm. daily, those fire, Lake of fire dailies, dailies that came in, yeah. by the way, uh, like we love saying like, you know, like, People out there, obviously, they're stuntmen, but they're also dancers out there. Yeah, you know, because you know, there's a, there's an unusual there's one of the people like unusually contorting himself. Yes, posing. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So like it's funny. 
I didn't connect it. Now, this is fan read. Yeah. I did not connect it until I started watching a soon to be released uh, documentary on uh, Michael Powell and Emmerich Pressburger, mm-hmm. uh, where uh, this is specifically talking about Michael's all is one mantra. Okay. And the all in one to encapsulate is, is that uh, cinema, dance, music can all be expressed as one thing and can communicate in itself where the point you don't necessarily need dialogue to, yeah. uh, you know, and, and Michael Powell would play with it. I'm killing this. So please, guys, somebody just tune into Thelma's like London tour or England tour right now. <laughs> and listen for, to the, what you're for, saying. The, for the youngers at home, um, but, Michael Powell was, was married to Thelma. That's right. Yeah. That's right. An incredible filmmaker. Yeah. Uh, d- uh, inspired, shoes. inspired, yeah. uh, 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 Incontrovertibly, uh, many people, uh, including, you know, Martin Scorsese, Martin Scorsese yeah. you know, uh, but anyhow, uh, I feel that whether Marty cops do it or not, and I'm sorry if, uh, you're listening right now or if Lisa's listening, um, I saw that as his one, all is one moment. Right. And the fact the encapsulation that encapsulation of the yeah, movie and, 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 and that, and that there doesn't need to be any dialogue for it. It just can be, uh, choreographed movement dance sound and sight and rodrigo shows up with this these telephoto lenses and he's like got like several firings that he's just going to be shooting through i know everybody but like his team is probably going what is happening what here yeah. why yeah. why all the fire fire guy yeah. and the, what we got was just as you said it is an encapsulation of the film with no need for anything other than the experience of it like we drop all of the exposition yeah and it just becomes and i love it it lingers well <laughs> this has been the only podcast about the film killers of the flower moon red thank you so much for coming back and uh, talking about this time, luckily, a film that you worked on. Not that our Beetlejuice conversation mm-hmm. or many others have not been. No, wonderful. no, no. Thank you for having me. Thank you for allowing me to express my opinions, my opinions alone. These are opinions that are not reflected by any filmmakers, but just read. Michael Keaton's <laughs> best performance. Go. <laughs> uh, oh, Michael Keaton. Uh, Mr. Bob. Oh, there we go. Yeah. Well, yeah. I was going to say the founder. Yeah. Oh, the founder. Oh, OK. Yeah. OK. Wait. Uh, I was going to say the vulture. Obviously. Yeah. I, I go a lot to multiplicity, though. Right? Multiplicity is a great one. Mr. Bob. Mom was fun. What is the, Mr. Uh, Mom was, we have an episode of Mr. One. Mom. Clean Laura and came Sober is great. Uh, yeah. I mean, I love his uh, Robbie Robinson in Spotlight. Oh, yeah. I love it. Yeah. yeah. Oh, my God. There's, okay. What, what did we anyway, just, what did we just do? Sorry, I was just oh, connecting it to the last time you were on the sorry. podcast, like wow, three weeks or a month so ago. Good. Uh, thank you so much for, hey, for thank you guys. Thank show. you. Thank you. Shahir, when you are not. Finding oil underneath your apartment. And starting a hellfire of my own. Yes. Where can folks find you? You can find me. Uh, there's a whole ocean of oil buried and only I can get access to it. Everyone knows that quote. Uh, there will be blood. No yeah, I understand. Know. You don't have to call okay, it out. Okay, Everyone knows that quote. Right. You guys looked at me blankly and I was like, what am I done here? Um, uh, you can find me quoting Daniel Plainview at my website, www.shahirdowd.com. That's S-H-A-H-I-R-D-A-U-D.com, which I have not updated in years. Matt, when you are reconnecting to your roots, where can people find you? You can find me... Uh... I mean, honestly, playing the Metal Gear Solid collection. No, it's actually bad. You shouldn't get it yet. It needs to be patched over at my website, M-A-T-T-H-E-W, carol.com, my life and works. 
Also, Skeletor, the number four, uh, P or PRZ on Instagram, all of them, they, they, you know, the numbers, they all work. I was just funny because Sheer mentioned he didn't update his website in years. I haven't updated mine. I don't know why we say it. <laughs> why do we even say I that? I don't know <laughs> why we, if you want to see work that each of us did 10 years ago, go to the websites that have our names in them. Um, and of course, Emperor MSK on Twitter uh, or my name on Blue Sky. Next week. I don't know. Well, what, uh, Rids, what, what, what's coming out that you're excited about? There are a few things right now. It is actually, I would love to do Anatomy of a Fool. Um, I'm really excited to see Anatomy of a Fool. I think it'd be a great film for us to watch. I don't know the release dates right now. Yeah. I is, really don't know the release dates right now. It, yeah. Everything is kind of pre Killers of the Flower Moon and post Killers of the Flower Moon. I'm not sure what. For, for me, yeah. it, it is. Yeah. 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 Things are kind of getting out of the way. There doesn't seem to be a lot right now. Like I said, Anatomy of the Fool, I'm really excited, but it's a hard one to get to. Uh, it's only playing at the IFC, I think. Um, Rid, what is there anything exciting that you're working on right now? Yeah, no, no, no. My letter writing campaign for uh, Lily Gladstone, best actor. <laughs> That's about it. Really, you just, you're just uh, sending it out to every Academy voter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You've got two in your you've got two yeah. in your office. Right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we have uh, we have iron. I have irons in the fire, but I can't talk about anything yet. Um, but thank you for asking. I yeah. do appreciate it. And I pre and you know what I want to say. I appreciate you uh, allowing us to have like an open dialogue about this film. Well, I think I think this film invites dialogue. I invite us all to go to bed because it's close to midnight. <laughs> Everybody, thank you so much for listening with your ears. And hopefully you'll come back next time with your hearts. Uh, I got nothing. I'm, I'm completely tapped. <laughs> Night, everybody. Good night. Bye.